The following program is recommended for ages 18 and over due to adult content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Behind the Scenes, a look at some of the sometimes steamy inside of Hollywood with your host, Hollywood executive and former Victoria's Secret model, Summer Helene. Our program features the gossip, the dish, and the stories of what's really going on behind your favorite movies, television shows, and celebrities from the people who are involved in the industry. Now, here is your host, Summer Helene. Do you have a desire to be famous? Do you want hordes of people screaming your name? Then ask your therapist if Hollywood's right for you. Hollywood, where you can work your entire first year as an unpaid intern, followed by a mandatory minimum 18-hour workday with guaranteed unpaid overtime. Where sexual assault is so common, you get to sign a waiver promising not to sue even before you start your new job. Warning, side effects may include insomnia, heavy drug use, thousands of dollars in therapy, alcoholism, anorexia nervosa, bulimia and or obesity, depending upon your job or role, hallucinations, loss of integrity, complete loss of moral compass, bleeding from the fingernails after trying to claw your way to the top, as well as excessive chapping of the lips after kissing everyone's ass. If you have these or any other side effects or begin to question your life choices, please contact your therapist because nobody in Hollywood gives a damn. Hollywood. Shut up and take it. G'day, guys. Welcome to Behind the Scenes. Um, everyone was asking why we weren't doing the intro anymore. So, we did uh, the intro. <laughs> I'd like to welcome Yeah, I know. Uh, it just, that, that intro just, just creeps me out. I mean, it has to be said, but it creeps me out. <laughs> Bloody accurate, if you ask me. That's what I mean by having to be said. Yes, I'm not arguing with the content. <laughs> I would argue a long time ago with the content, but I, I can't. I can't. <laughs> It's un- it really, really, really is unfortunate. So we, there, there is no major Hollywood news. Um, I actually wanted to know, Paul, if you're okay talking a little bit on air about um, the international view of America, because I do find that interesting and what shaped it. And then we have a bunch of people that had um, questions for Paul. So I want to do those two things, if that's okay with you. Yeah, yeah no, no, that's fine. Fine, we were having a conversation about... Uh, uh, how America is viewed in the world and the, the, the Trump effect. Right? And I will also say like the effect of the last three or four presidential administrations. Um, the, the last three or four administrations politically, I'm not going to say anything about good or bad, but personally uh, they weren't offensive internationally. If that makes any sense. Um, not to me, not with the war that we waged in the Middle East. No, I'm I'm predominantly talking about Europe and Asia. I, I get that, but you mm-hmm. can wage a war. Just don't be rude about it. Globally, it's it's really funny. People really are more upset by Trump than they were than they are at Bush, um, which is bizarre as hell to me. But whatever. Yeah, pretty much. But, you know, everybody's kind of got, uh, you know, a bit of TDS right now with the Trump derangement syndrome. And I can tell them that you got to look for a Democratic candidate that's got more to offer than orange man bad. You know, so, you know, it's like, okay, yes, we have, as I said before, we've elected the human equivalent of Cheeto flavored Adderall in the White House. Let's just. You know, let's put a decent. Now we have an opportunity to vote them out in two years. Impeachment, really? No, impeachment's not going to happen. Not, not in two years. Who, who gives? Well, that's it. No, it doesn't matter. the The problem and the big problem, I think, is 
Um, people seem to think Trump is shaping the world's view of America. And it's really <laughs> predominantly just shaping the world's view of Trump. I mean, you know, well, I, I talk to politicians back home and the consensus is, is pretty simple. Man, Trump's an asshole and I don't want to deal with him. But as for the way the world sees America, it's interesting. Um, America seems to think the world sees them as um, yokels with firearms, you know, 400 pounds overweight, eating a cheeseburger, and that's always the American I, consensus. I, until I had my stomach surgery, I kind of checked all of those boxes that you just put out there. So I'm, I'm just was, saying. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, uh, but, but now it's um, like a 300 pound person which oh i don't really like cheeseburgers i like cheese and i like burgers i just don't like them on the burger but that's all the thing and i'm and man i am definitely a gun owner so you know well but, but most yeah. of the world doesn't understand america's obsession with guns there are enough guns in this country to give everyone on earth three but um that actually isn't what what america is viewed as and it's twofold it's a twofold effect Yes, people do have that that view of everyone looking like Michael Moore, um, but holding an AK forty seven. Right. Yeah. Um, they they do have that, but it's more a than that, gun. So you know, you know, there we go. That's a gun either made in China or Russia. So I know, but it's still. We're not talking about the rational, but more than seeing that, um, the the global view of the American GI is still a thing. There's a reason women still want to marry Americans. People still move here. Mm, there's yeah, there's this view. pretty easy. Well, you, you get somebody to marry. So, yeah. I know. Ask the first lady. Um, and, you know, I'm, I, I would give that woman a green card. My God, that's a good looking broad. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to get so letters. I don't think that should be the criteria. <laughs> Um, but I'm not opposed to her having citizenship. She's contributed financially to the country. Um, yeah, it's done. She's like Michelle Obama. She's basically just kind of kept to herself and done her own little charities and things like that. She really hasn't been out. You know, I know there was that jacket that I don't care, which I think is taken out of the wrong time. I, I think she shouldn't have worn it with to a deten she children's detention about. center. Like, it was one of those, one, she should not have worn it, but it was a freaking jacket. Yeah, but with all the things, like, uh, she's, uh, Melania's, uh, like, sick, and that's actually a body double that's out there, and all oh, the it's so crap. she's taken, taken, you know, so I kind of chalk it up to that. She's never I, I don't think there was a political a, statement meant. I think she wore a, a jacket that was, in that was in style, flat out. It was in style. It was on the runway right before that. Anyone that follows fashion could have told you that. That jacket had just come out. Um, the version she had was one of the originals, and it was done individually. She had a one-of-a-kind. She was clearly wearing... I completely believe that she just wore a jacket. You know? That's pretty much what it is. That she wasn't trying to make a statement or other, but she doesn't really... She but doesn't her... But her political advisors needed a kick in the ass because they should have caught it. Her assistant um, should have caught it. There are people read. whose job it is. There are people whose job it mm -hmm. is to look her over before she leaves. She is a high fashion model, or she was. 
She's going to care about fashion. She's going to care about what she's wearing. But it's not going to occur to her in a political sense. It's not. And, you know, it's it sucks to say it that way, but it does. Um, Actually, the the view most people have of America is more like Captain America. Square-jawed, down-home GIs. And that view came in after World War II. You guys have to remember, you kind of saved the world. Yeah, I mean, it took us a while to get into the fight. So you know. yeah, yes, but you still say like it. the Eddie is the Eddie Izzard uh, thing. Then America shows up. Where the hell have you been? You know that kind of thing. So, but that, that's it. It's, it took you guys a while, and you weren't great exactly uh, about exporting the Jews. Yeah. Yeah, it's about bloody time you showed up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whenever whenever I I, mean, I uh, leave a set set, you know, or when the set's over, I always use a line from that. All right, well, see you next war. You know, so there we go. That's actually a perfect example. But that's mm-hmm. very much, if you hear, uh, if you look at even Eddie is saying that, that's very much the view of America. You guys swoop in, save the day, take off. But this view has been per- per- perpetuated by American cinema. So the internet has pushed the view of the, you know, the good old boy with the cheeseburger. But cinema which has been around much longer than the internet and has been exported since before world war ii um really made a huge difference and has put an exclamation mark next to how people see america so they can have complaints with trump but that's not changing the world view on america they you know the biggest complaint you'll hear when talking to foreign politicians is they don't want to deal with trump not they don't want to deal with america and that's not a bad thing. You guys are known to have frequently changing leaders. You don't have a monarch. So I think. Right. Yeah. I mean, but like I always said, the argument, I always had this argument until Trump, we pretty much had the same president as far as foreign relations and economic policies since Reagan. Oh, no, absolutely not. The um, no. Or otherwise, you guys wouldn't have ended up in uh, in uh, in Afghanistan. But. No, that's exactly the reason we wound up in Afghanistan. But well, you, Afghanistan was more of a uh, a response to nine eleven. That's my point. You guys haven't had the same administration. You had, you've really have just from a foreigner's perspective, you really have had very different different leaders. Um, Trump is not a good kind of different, and I'm not talking about politics. I'm just talking about, especially when you deal with older countries. The reason he so offends everyone is because of the view we have about America. If you look at your former presidents, they kind of fit that American swagger, strong, you know, strong jaw, great mm-hmm. smile. Invaded countries, toppled leaderships, put in banana republics. Yeah, I know. Well, no, that that's actually got nothing to do with it. I'm not talking about your own politics. Clinton. Clinton's like the only one who didn't do that, I think, as far as I know. Although, I mean, Bill Clinton. Yeah. Uh, We only had like one like police action, Bosnia, during his tenure, if I'm not mistaken. You're on politics. I'm talking about view and how people see things. America has the best marketing policy of any country in the world. Yeah, Yeah, Hollywood. But that's it. You guys are so well sold that's why Trump offends everyone so much is because we have this view of America 
um, where your president is a great speaker with a good smile. And believe it or not, even with Bush's Bushisms, um, that didn't affect things the way you, you would think it should. He still had a strong jaw, a Texas accent, and seemed like an all-American guy. Um, despite, uh-huh. but despite, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure with his mental retardation. Um, yeah. we, but that's just from a foreign perspective, that's how it was seen. And that's why Trump was such a shock to the world because we always saw you guys as the, the way you guys would describe a Midwesterner, hardworking, down home, strong jaw farm boy, because that's mm-hmm. how you've sold us you. In, America instead has, of a, 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 a flashy nouveau reach, reach New Yorker. Uh, actually, know. even the New Yorker wouldn't have offended. The New Yorker doesn't offend anyone. Nouveau reach, not a great thing to old world countries, just FYI. But cutting right. out the, yeah. but cutting out Those, the nouveau reach. That's kind of one of the things that the, the rich in New York never really accepted. The old, the old growth uh, wealthy never really accepted Trump because he was like a new growth wealthy. Well, actually, if you uh, look at Trump's father and older brother before he passed, they were friends um, with the Rothschilds and with uh, with the Rothschilds, Roosevelt's, and with the um, mm-hmm. uh, Rockefellers. They were, they were rich, and then Donald made them stupid rich. The well, it doesn't. Or it wasn't. At least it giving didn't off have, the impression that he's stupid rich because he's never going to these taxes. It didn't have to do with money. It had to do with Trump's behavior. Trump was mm-hmm. more obsessed with being famous and yeah. his behavior um, from from that perspective, his family's, you know, he's still third generation money. He's not the money's not that new. Um, the ridiculous money is. No, not really. I don't think his father was, I don't think his his father grandfather was a billionaire. Uh, well, no, but they 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 were multi-millionaires in a time where mm-hmm. there weren't billionaires. So his family was ridiculously wealthy. Always was. The problem... They're, they're, Trump, you know, the Donald's family is kind of like the, 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 the yokels that won the lottery. Uh, no! Old toilets in the trailer. It's not, but that's the problem. It's not his family. His sister is a society woman. I was, um, I was referring to his units. Oh, yeah, his sister. No, I think just, just reti- his sister just retired as a. I think she's a high circuit court judge in New York. Uh, she's eighty something. He has a yeah. younger brother. I, I don't know off the top of my head what he what that one does. And, of and course, then he the had the older brother that died. That that uh, that drank himself to death, which is why you know Donnie, Donnie doesn't yeah. drink. But it comes down to what offended yeah, everyone. He could really use a drink. I think if he had a drink every once in a while, he I think he needs. So- I think he oh. needs some pot. Just saying, it's legal now. Someone give it to him. Um, yeah, so it wouldn't be a bad idea either. That's where he's run into trouble. Is you know, it's not a matter of him being nouveau riche. It's the fact that he brought the. Tra- it, it, it's not the fact that you know he brought the trailer park to the wealthy. It mm. really. It's his behavior, and that's the problem America's having globally. The reason he's been found so offensive by everyone is because Mm -hmm. he breaks the idea that you guys have sold us. We see the American GI. We see, you know, we see the Americans as optimistic, hardworking. Like, this has been sold globally for so long 
uh, that it's kind of the how could the American people do this? What the hell's right, wrong right, with right. them? What's wrong with him? These although, aren't the people. In Trump's defense, I've never seen a, a, a president that just does so freaking much so quickly. That you doesn't know. have. We're talking about your talking politics. I'm talking image. Yeah, because I. I it doesn't matter. It doesn't really doesn't matter. That's what's affecting foreign relations. It doesn't. If if Trump called world peace, mm-hmm. most of the world is still going to be offended by him because of his bloody mouth. Well, you know, if 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 Trump says, you know, I like ice cream, all of a sudden, I bet you ice cream sales would plummet uh, worldwide, and everybody would be hating ice cream. You know. Um. Yeah. I, I don't think everyone would give up ice cream for him, but I get what you mean. For about a week. For about a week. Kid. Give it a week. Pimple kid. Yeah. I, th- I think it comes down to you guys for so long sold an image on what yeah. Americans were. And I think this so overwhelmed and horrified the world because it's just not what we were promised. I think a lot of the world, one of the best ways I heard it was we feel lied to. Is this how Americans really are? And, you know, I, I talk to friends back yeah. home. I'm like, no, it's America not. Shut is, up. Americans are America great. America is a, is, is a melting pot of many different attitudes. Uh, you know, we had a, we had a, you know, as far as personalities go, go and as image, we've had a very diverse group of uh, presidents. No, you haven't. You You've know? had white guys. Um, but but the, <laughs> the, the reality... The, the, yeah. the reality is America is not as diverse as Australia. It's not as diverse as most countries. It's a very, it's still a very white country. Um, so for us, the image is still very, very singular, the way we see America. And that's, you know, you guys have had the best marketing campaign on earth. You exported every good movie there ever was. You sold it to the world, you know, you, you, America is at the forefront of entertainment and our biggest exports are, are freaking pop culture, music and movies. And of course, unfortunately, uh, military weapons, which make, but those things make you the biggest influences in the world. Your military are why we see American GIs, love it or hate it. Your military regulations always keep your guys looking squared away. You know, I, I deal with a lot of military guys. They've always got the mm-hmm. perfect haircut. They're always well done. You guys are really strict on how you guys look, which gives that global image of the American GI. You guys mm-hmm. are very strict on their weight. You're very strict on a lot of things, and that fixes... You got a bunch of fat, you got a bunch of fat guys in your Australian army? No, but you'll see our guys like... Um, I, I had friends that went over in the first wave in Iraq and they bumped into Australians. And, you know, in, in, in Iraq, the Americans still had to look squared away. The Australian right. guys looked like hobos. They've got that, a grizzled beard that, growing. That really, that really kind of went away. They, they, once, the, once they realized that anybody who wasn't walking around with a beard, uh, that basically the, an enemy combatant would say, oh, well, there's the American over there. He's the one guy who's clean, high and tight. Boom, you know. It's actually still, um, I have still have friends, you know, that have been, that, that were in the last wave. It's, mm-hmm. the, your guys are still squared away. They are. And I'm running around. I've got, a, I, I know a lot of people who've grown the big beard. Oh, yeah. That's just, that's just so they can blend in. 
but that's uh, that's a different job. I'm talking about the day to day soldier, not not the, not the guys running oh. around. Um, we have to go to break, guys. Oh, yeah? When we come back, we'll continue this conversation while Paul and I argue over how American GIs look. Um, but so you know, that's why the world's so aggro, guys. They are actually less concerned with your politics than you think. But bad manners still offends the old world. I know I get yelled at by my grandmother all the time for my bad manners and my language on this show. We'll be right back after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Can you truly be a change agent in your community? We think you can. Tune in every week for Envision with co-hosts Thomas Rosenberg and Ronnie Langer-Kroger. The show is all about building an inclusive and just future by connecting people with ideas. Connect with what's happening in your community, your country, and around the world as we speak with amazing guests who are fostering change and making their communities better. Envision is heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Where can you learn about EasyWayPromotions.com's social media marketing, brand positioning, and more? Easy Talk Live. Where can you get tuned into celebrities in the business world? Easy Talk Live. Where can you learn about entrepreneurment? Easy Talk Live. Every week, host Eric EZ Zuli and his celebrity friends talk about global causes, offer tips and tricks that you can use right now on social media, and give you the chance to promote your projects on Easy Talk Live. Every Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England, along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week, and each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Behind the Scenes with host Summer Helene. To connect with the show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to bts at summerhelene.com. Now let's go back behind the scenes. G'day, g'day, guys. Welcome back to Behind the Scenes. I'm your host, Summer Helene, and we are on with my co-host, host the Militant Moderate, Paul Michael Bowen. Mm-hmm. And I'm so, trying to figure out, okay, apparently I got subtitles. It's just dictating everything here. Right. Just, yeah. I have no idea what the hell I'm doing on this freaking thing. But yeah, right. for some reason it's not working. Um, I do want to give a quick shout out to Adrian Alcantar Hair Studios in Palm Springs, California. Thank you for always making me look gorgeous when I need it. Aspen Mills Bread Company. Jennifer McVeigh, uh, hypnotherapist, we had her on last week. We're going to have her on again. I know you guys had a lot of questions for her. Pino's Palette in Palm Springs for our painting giveaways. The New Palm Springs Diet by our good friend, Dr. Russ. Um, uh, Isabel, she was my makeup artist for the Documentary Film Festival I just went to. You can check her out 
uh, at Isabel uh, Mc. I, I'm not even going to pronounce this. I'm going to put up a link. She is phenomenal. You can find her on Instagram. And, of course, hair by Stacey at, Sto at Tossled Maine. Um, she did my hair before the last event and made me look gorgeous. I got the Bridget Bardot things. Our giveaways this week are a ride at Off-Road Rentals in Palm Springs, California, a float at True Rest, Sedona or Las Vegas, and a painting from Pino's Palette in Palm Springs. Uh, Does Paul? he do clowns? I like clowns. I don't know nobody, what clowns. Nobody likes clowns, Paul. You sound like a psycho. Um, our question for the week. We were supposed to be talking about Paul. We went into American GIs and somehow we went off track. Um, stop that writing to me about American GIs. Um, the question I'm going to ask you is about Paul. Somebody tell me what Paul asked them a question about you. People wanted to know about you, and we'll do our giveaways for you. Ask three okay. questions. Let's, okay. Uh, what is my porn name? Bomb, bomb, bomb. Question one. Mm -hmm. What is Paul's porn name? If you can tell us that, we'll give you a free ride at Off-Road Rentals in Palm Springs, California. Next question. Uh, what was the last adult film that I, I appeared in? If you can tell us that, you get a float at True Rest, Sedona, or Las Vegas. And our third question. I just hit the microphone. Mm, uh, did, uh, okay, how many times was I stunt cocked? Perfect. Find that out, and you can get a painting from Pino's Palette in Palm Springs. <laughs> They do really good paintings. Um, and then I'm going to have to, I, I just, th that, that question horrifies me. I'm not repeating it. We have a special <laughs> guest on today. Uh, you just heard that question. Okay. You just yes. heard that, yeah. Thanks, Paul. I'd like to remind yes. everyone, every time we use bad language, oh, every time Buffle. we swear, we give Buffle. money to the Boys and Girls Club of America. We give money to Buffle. Free MMA, which is a free MMA gym. And, of course, the Humane Society of America. So every time we swear, we're doing it for charity, guys. And Alexis, my assistant, is going to kill Paul because she has to go back and count all these. Mm. So the show donates the money and it's matched by Voice America. It's for a good cause, Lex. Right, exactly. So. Okay. okay. Um, Dion Giuseppe is a technology... Oh, my God. Some of that got transcribed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is a technology industry veteran focused on the innovation de delivery of distribution of digital media content and the changes uh, that changes the landscape of filmmaking in the 21st century. His work includes a, co a comprehensive platform solutions for digital content distribution, delivery, and marketing uh, that exploit the emerging market, uh, the emerging multi-screen entertainment ecosystem. His efforts with Cinematica enable technology tools and platforms that help fundraisers, festivals, and independent filmmakers shape the future on screens of all sizes using multiple technologies to send projects and to research modern and globally divisive, uh, diverse audiences. Now, I got to tell you guys, um, check out Cinematic. You can find it on Facebook. You can find them on Twitter. We'll put up the link. But you you got to know, the internet has absolutely changed the way distribution is done. And this is a really cool distribution outlet, if you check it out. So I'd like to welcome to the show, Dion Yusapi. Hi, Summer. How are you? Quite well, thank you. Welcome to the show. Um, I went thank through you. your bio a little bit, and um, it sounds great, but I immediately have about 8,400 questions on Twitter about okay. what, <laughs> what uh, how, does, how is this different? 
I, I think the difference is that um, most platforms are really focused on uh, on uh, streaming content distribution with large libraries of of content that really kind of end up being a a digital wasteland and, and a lot of filmmakers that are really looking to to differentiate their content through distribution digitally um, and in theaters are struggling with the fact that once they make the decision to go digital, they feel that the the relevance of what they've done gets lost in that wasteland. So really, oh, yeah. our, our our focus is on trying to trying to change that by being a partner full life cycle from from the inception of the idea uh, to to the release them on a strategy from the beginning um, and avoiding the trap of waiting until you've wrapped to, to distribute or even think about distribution. Um, so I think that's the main differentiator for us and also offering uh, more, more data-driven analysis of how to distribute in different regions, when and why, and how to target demographics intelligently so that you, you accomplish the one thing that filmmakers really want is to get their, their film seen. Um, so I think there's a huge opportunity here by really getting um, smart about how we do that and how we partner with filmmakers to achieve that. And that's really what we're passionate about and focused on. Now, um, everyone always asks, I talk about distribution and the different ways to distribute. What you have is a, is a very, very different way of doing it. I, th- I think so. I think so. You know, I, uh, the, I, whenever you travel the, uh, the festival circuit, and, and uh, I've, I've certainly done my share, uh, the, the view of, of the distributor is really um, uh, not that positive in my mind. I think it comes from more of an old school view of, of distributors as, as uh, 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 individuals that, that troll festivals looking for um, uh, unsuspecting vi- victims to sign away rights to their film for seven to ten years. And those terms are really pretty egregious. They're not, they're not realistic, and I don't think a lot of filmmakers really understand what they're signing up for when they do that. They effectively lose control of their film for a very long time, often with highly restrictive terms um, that limit their ability to distribute it on other platforms, that uh, arguably don't give them enough data about how people are reacting to their film. Um, and and that's, that's unfortunate because I think the, the, uh, the, the desire on the part of the filmmaker to, to be seen um, causes some rash decisions. So my, my struggle with that is in the absence of partnership, real partnership, um, you, you don't really get the results you're looking for and your work is your art. It's also a commercial, a commercial product. It has to be a viable commercial product. It has to reach a market. Um, I, and it's not a particular focus. It's really tough. Yeah. So that's where I think we can help. And I think there's a lot of room for um, uh, phenomenal opportunities. This is a, this is a really exciting time in my mind. I, I know a lot of traditional filmmaking uh, opportunities are all about the theater and theatrical distribution is still very important. Um, but, but it's part of the picture. It's one screen. It's one way to experience films. And there are many screens to experience it. So I think Cinematica is really all about giving you a single point of entry into that ecosystem um, so that users, viewers have a choice and how they experience your, your motion picture. And I think the emerging generation is all about having that choice and making that conscious and deliberate. And it doesn't have to be in a theater to be um, a phenomenal experience. Certainly, anyone that owns a ultra-high-definition television uh, flat screen of 65 to 75 inches or even less can vouch for the quality of the image. And I think it compels you to ask yourself, 
what have you seen lately in the theater that really was large format worthy that you couldn't have experienced other ways. And, and certainly millennials are experiencing content on mobile devices while uh, in, in transit, on laptops, um, everywhere they can find it. It's a very different landscape. Uh, and I think with the motion picture industry has to catch up to really understand that and see it irrelevant very quickly. Now, I'm, I'm going to ask you, when with the changing landscape of distribution, um, people often find themselves... You know, wanting to go to Netflix, wanting to go um, places like that. What, why, why is your platform different? Um, two reasons. Those, those platforms are really focused exclusively on distribution, um, meaning, you know, that their, their business is populating a very large catalog with, with content. Uh, if, you, if you reflect on the Netflix strategy, put it all in perspective, it started out DVD rental-based. Um, as an entry point into the market. Um, once they, they garnered enough users, they were able to shift to what, was, what used to be called video on demand. Um, and and that, that model had really a poor assembly of titles initially. It wasn't a large library. And of the library, there weren't very many compelling titles in it. Um, it, was, it was get what you can accumulate in that library to capture users and, and, and be ready when more content deals could be struck with the studios and the, and the, uh, the large library distributors. Um, but still, you know, the, the reality is there's more content than you can consume. And I think what a lot of viewers are struggling with right now is, is streaming, streaming uh, stress, streaming exhaustion, and that's literally too many choices, content oversupply, and not really having an intelligent mapping of how content um, is, is delivered to you and what your part in, is it, uh, in that process is. So I really think there's, there's an opportunity to integrate it, and we really look to building audiences through fan-owned or fan-subsidized media. We're, we're really working on um, exciting uh, developments and things like blockchain technology to create a, more of a certificate of title where fans can be stakeholders in investing in a film in the development process and where the value of that film goes and that does a couple things. It, it builds a basis for filmmakers who have ideas in development that never really see the light of day. And it also does something that is very unique, I think, to the millennial era, is that it, it engages them in the process early enough to be stakeholders in it. So in much the same fashion as the stock market has ebbs and flows based on value, entertainment assets should have it as well, too. So I think there's a really exciting opportunity to change that through engagement. And, and really analyzing how people engage and what their interests are and sharing that data with filmmakers, with festivals, and with audiences, um, both in location-based scenarios like theaters. Theaters are still part of the mix. And in the other multi-screen environments like mobile devices, over-the-top platforms, and uh, uh, web-based delivery platforms, PC or laptop. How, so, how, you know, there's, there's, how does there's a huge it opportunity there. How does it affect the um, traditional advertising? You know, usually when you go for distribution, part of your part of what happens is you make a deal for advertising. They're going to put this much behind you backing the advertising. How does going this route affect the advertising? Well, we have a pretty good opportunity to influence that directly. The, the sponsorship market for festivals, for example, is, is significant. That, that's how festivals happen. 
in the first place. So you can't rule do is really tack on uh, pre-roll, post-roll, or interstitial advertising and use that as a basis for revenue sharing. Our model is really about being more of a partner in revenue sharing on an equitable basis than uh, brokering terms with you up front to take your movie for a long time and do with it what we will. I think that's the, that's the more traditional market for distribution. In, in our world, we see the ad revenue as being, as being a revenue share opportunity for the filmmaker as well. So if you can pull that in in ways that you think would be artistically um, uh, uh, purposeful, meaning you know, it doesn't er- interrupt the flow of the experience of the film, it's very useful. Some filmmakers opt in for that, some don't, um, but it certainly factors into the overall revenue sharing opportunity for filmmakers. We'd like to see that returned in partnership with the filmmaker um, to, to the creator of the content. And often, you know, once the film is licensed, those opportunities are lost to, to the developer of the content, which is unfortunate. There's much stakeholders in its, in its success as the distributors are. How do you handle quality control for your platform? Making sure you're getting uh, the right films on. Absolutely. So production values are really important. We support, we support uh, 4K streaming as well, although there's not a super huge market for consuming. Um, and you're seeing it start to happen in sports, but all of them are based on standard uh, encoding uh, that that ensures the quality of the film. We have uh, we have APIs that support uh, cloud-based encoding that checks quality for NTSC-based standards, HD-based standards, and Ultra HD-based standards. So we can um, we can gracefully degrade quality based on the experience they're having. For example, Roku uh, has a platform that's available probably in the largest digital footprint globally. Uh, there are many countries that um, still will consume standard definition content. So, you know, your content, although not engineered that way, most aren't anymore, certainly has to be available in, in formats where there's an audience that still has to consume it that way. So having the ability um, to... To test that and deliver it that way based on the environment is, is really important. That's something that we do. Now, well, for filmmakers, for people who want, um, are looking at your, your distribution platform, what's the largest number of eyeballs you've gotten on a single movie? Oh, gosh. I would, I would say, I would say the, the most ironic one for me was was about 150,000 over the over the over the course of a three week period in one country on a short that I totally didn't expect um, I you know shorts typically are, are rapid consumption and obviously they're they're low at, low on attention span and they don't leave an indelible etch on the audiences but this one in particular you know I I didn't really have high hopes for but it ended up uh, doing that in a, over a three-week period and for a short, that's pretty phenomenal. And it did it in Japan. Um, uh, the cultural nuances uh, still mystify me, so there are always room for surprises in the global market about who's interested and why. You can go crazy on analytics, but sometimes there are unpredictable patterns in, in consumption that you can't see coming based on the film and how it's perceived in another culture. And it seems pretty fantastic that you're giving filmmakers an opportunity to make money off a short. That yeah, that's that. Well, that was why I wanted to have him on. There, you know, mm. we have so many people who write into the show and talk about 
they've made this film or they're doing this and what do they do next? And there is no opportunity for short film. There really isn't. Um, I just have the festival circuit and online, just maybe you get some money revenue out of YouTube, you get a big That's money. But that's it. And so I have so many people write in, well, what do I do with this? And my answer has always been, I have no idea. Um, you know, put, put it on YouTube because fuck mm-hmm. only knows. Um, put it on YouTube or uh, go play Hollywood at a film festival. You know. Pretty much. That's that's it. That's those have, up until now. Those have really been your options. So for yeah. people, I always tell people when like I want to make a short, um, I always say don't bother. And this is the first time actually after talking at yeah. the Docu Festival, I now tell people I'm like actually I know a place you can submit your short. I know a place you can you can send that because I've never been able to say that, and it's never been shorts have never been financially viable ever. And you've yes, actually created a wasn't way really, for them to... wasn't really what their point was. I know, but, no. you know, Paul, it's me. I'm kind of a butthead, and I, I just want... If it's not financially viable, I don't see the point. Um, the interesting <laughs> thing is the shorts are shorts are emerging as, as a relevant uh, format because we, we just don't have time. Asking for an hour or 90 minutes is a big ask these days. If you think yeah, about your you Netflix can... queue... Uh, you know, how do we ever keep up with, with episodics anymore? We're in oversupply. So shorts are a, a nice way, if they're, if they're quality, um, to get an entertainment bump in a really short amount of time. Oh, and, and get if, you get, if you can pack, like, the maximum entertainment and uh, maximum of your art into a, a time span that normally uh, cat videos occupy. Well, I, I agree uh, with yeah, all of that. <laughs> I, I just, you know, my, my whole job's always been making making money. So when people talk to me, they're like, well, what about this? What about this short? What about this? I've never had a good answer for them until a few weeks ago, until a couple of weeks ago. Then I had a good answer. Um, and I think it's great because I think it's giving filmmakers, real filmmakers, you know, in, and indie filmmakers a platform that just didn't exist. I think it's great. And what's worth mentioning is that, um, you know, shorts were always viewed as a litmus test on your ability to do a feature, right? It, you, it's part of your portfolio. It might validate your, oh, your talent. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, the, the short format doesn't always translate well to a feature. I've seen features that were based on shorts that have also failed miserably. They just didn't work in a 90-minute format. Or uh, highly effective in a twenty-minute format. So it, it comes down to talent. Oh really. yeah, comedy comedies are a yeah. shit show. When 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 you, when you take a comedy short and try and make it a full, it's it, it's yeah. a disaster. When you take a short that's got one good joke, I mean, even Dave Chappelle talked about this, and when he was doing his sketch show, you know, his video of Third World Girls Gone Wild. It's like, yeah, that's funny for about two minutes. <laughs> Really yeah. funny yeah. for that two minutes. But, but there's nothing more. I, yeah. I love that. But it also gives a format. If someone, especially, yeah, for comedy shorts, it's a great way to go. Um, for short, you know, even for docu shorts, for there, there just hasn't been that platform. And personally, I think it's really impressive because I think you've tapped into a market that didn't have a place that, you know, if someone was smart, they would have tapped into this ages ago because shorts existed ages ago. But... I, I think it's brilliant. You've done this. And yeah, and we don't really, you know, we also, uh, we don't rule out features. It's just that, honestly, I'm, I'm finding the demand around features is, is limited because of exactly that. I have a small amount of time, 
and I'm going to be very deliberate in how I, intend, how I spend the entertainment time that I have because I'm overwhelmed with options and choices. And that's really the environment we're living in today. Uh, so unless you want to spend all I, weekend I watching episodics. I think you've hit a very, very unique niche. And one of the things I talk to people about is um, the best way to make money is, is to find that niche. Unless you're making, you know, a tent pole, um, you, you have to be very, very careful where you direct things. And it sounds like you've got a, a broad reach into uh, a lot of different places. Yes, and the and international the th- market is really pretty interesting because, as I said earlier, uh, you know, it doesn't resonate with American audiences. It may surprise you internationally. And frequently, it does me all the time. Really, I question viability. Uh, naturally, and what happens is that I that my instincts aren't always correct. Now, well, then let me ask you this: What was the uh, of all the films you put out? You said which one surprised you the most was the one that did well in Japan. Um, what do you see? Where where do you see people that are creating these shorts that are putting these things out there? Um, what would you recommend they make? What sells the best? You know, I think I think comedy is a great option, short form. Uh, you know, it's 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 consumable. It it, uh, it it drives the entertainment value almost immediately. Um, in capable hands, of course, uh, and yes. and you can you can get a reputation uh, of being effective at it. You know, very very quickly. Where where things can go wildly astray is if the the plot line is too sophisticated for the format and um, uh, important narrative pieces are omitted. You can't develop a character in time. You're just not experienced enough at saying a lot with less. And for anyone who's ever written a short story, you know, the same problem exists. It turns out Mark Twain was right. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot harder to communicate in a short format than it is in a longer one where you have runway. Another suggestion I have is take the concept of shorts and think about your idea in terms of episodics because if you have a short and it's, it's fully baked and it resonates with audiences, it's very likely that you give yourself some character development runway, some story development runway by delivering it installments. Maybe you have a feature that isn't really working well as a feature that you could deliver episodically and get more revenue and more attention um, in terms of the consumption model because, as I said, it's easier to convince someone to consume something episodically than it is in 90 to you know 120-minute chunks. It's just it's a it's a big ask in the 21st century. So I would say short to prove out your concept, ideally comedy, because it's it's it 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 gets to the point faster. You know, developing anything that's more sophisticated than that usually ends up being uh, tougher for emerging filmmakers. Um, documentaries are great ways to do that. Well, you can you can highlight or spotlight um, an activism point of view um, effectively that doesn't deteriorate into an exercise in journalism. Of course, and there is a difference between um, what a documentary does well. It does actually tell a story. I mean, if you can do that effectively as a as a documentary filmmaker, there's also a big market for that because people are willing to consume that in a short format. And of course, um, you can do episodic docs and you can do episodic narratives, and and they they work well because they give you lots of runway to develop a story, to develop characters, and to manage your budget test the market and how people are reacting with analytics and say the first two episodes worked 
Um, the next one doesn't look like it's going to work at all because I really didn't think through my storyline. The through line on the narrative just didn't work past three episodes. Looks like I need to rethink this. You've got some backup room on your ideas when you validate it with a pilot. It's no different than what what television is. What do you think of um, episodic shorts? Is Is it one I got on Twitter? Is that something Absol- you put out? Oh, ab- absolutely, absolutely. We, I've seen it. I've seen it done in a number of instances, um, and and you know they can be pretty esoteric. It's, the cool part is you can get you can get really niche or oriented now. You know what used to be too small a market uh, is is now worldwide. Everything was mainstream. It's all about mainstream programming. It's got to be consumable by everyone in order to make any money. And now you can narrow band it and, and deal with a, a very specific genre for a very specific market. Um, LGBTQ, for example, is, is really its own genre and its own market. And that's, that's a phenomenal market size globally. And it resonates with, you know, with what used to be perceived as a narrow band market, but is now an extremely socially relevant and vocal part of the, of the entertainment landscape. So I think if you really look at that, I've seen that work really, really effectively. Um, um, and, and, and it gives you voice in a place where um, you feel like you're adding something to the storyline. And it also gives you runway to develop a story um, in, in ways that are probably not being done because there's a, a reluctance to take risks with larger formats. I think episodics and episodic shorts give you that, that runway to learn, um, uh, measure, and reevaluate and pivot if you're wrong. And you just don't get that privilege with a feature. That's true. Now, we have about five minutes left to the show. I need to ask, uh, where can everyone find you on social media? Because I I, want to get that out before we go, because we always get cut off at the end. Uh, Facebook.com forward slash uh, Cinematica. That's S-Y-N-I-M-A-T-I-C-A. Twitter uh, forward slash uh, Cinematica. Instagram forward slash uh, Cinematica. I think that, that covers it. I guess I probably could do add Snapchat, but not as active there. And uh, Paul, of course. Oh, of course. Uh, the uh, militant moderate will uh, soon, soon. Of course, my I Facebook, know. the YouTube channel, uh, my non-existent Twitter account that I just still don't know how to figure out. And you can find our past episodes on uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and iTunes. And I do want to ask uh, the, the, the final question. What is your criteria? I have a whole bunch of filmmakers writing, wanting to know what do we do? How, how do we get in? How do we get to you? Facebook, you can, you can message me on Facebook. Well, they're, uh, they're, asking, they're asking how to submit. Oh, how, how to submit. How, there's actually a submit, submit page. Their, their there's a submit page on the website itself on cinematica.com. There's a menu option in the upper right. Um, you can see submit your film, and it just requires a brief synopsis of your content and contact information so we can follow up with you directly. Um, you also have the option of doing the same on Facebook if you prefer. Is it for is it, uh, is it going to be rated, or is it, uh, you know what I mean, uh, adult they're, content? They're non-rated, kind of it's, it's non-rated content, so, you know, the, the criteria, obviously, uh, you know, the, we're, we're, we need to evaluate it in terms of, you know, sensitivity to to um, any approach to content that deals with violence, but not in a not in a censored way, but something that is simply not going to resonate with audience simply because it it, it isn't uh, appropriately positioned. But I think that's a matter of subjectivity, and you know we're mm-hmm. not in the business of censorship. So I, I think it, I think it's really a matter of submitting it, talking about your concept. 
how you're positioning it and what your story is. Um, but I, I, I think, you know, aside from uh, things that are, that, are, that are hateful in their intent or, or have, you know, issues that aren't related to an actual story, um, mm-hmm. where, which I've certainly seen, you know, the, it's all about, it's really, it's really up to you. The value of the story lies in how it resonates with audiences, but it must be a story whether it's document, documentary-driven or narrative. Can, can, you, can, can you say fucking those stories? Or, uh, oh, actually, you yeah, no, no they're, all, they're non-rated on Amazon Fire, on, on, all, on Roku, mm-hmm. on everything. We have some, we have some pretty uh, um, interesting, interesting content, I would say. I, 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 would, uh, I definitely wouldn't rule out anything that's experimental, um, mm-hmm. But uh, of course, you know, there's there's some subjectivity uh, relative to that. It's just really understanding what the filmmaker's goal is and and how they approach the subject, and mm-hmm. if that goal is yeah. is to communicate and to share and to tell a story, then it's going to resonate with an audience. It will find its audience, and we'll help you find one. I like that. Um, Dion, thank you so so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. A lot of people that listen in are aspiring filmmakers or filmmakers themselves. And we got a lot of write-ins just asking how to submit. So that's fantastic. Um, I'm going to put a link up to the website so everyone can find you. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to share and uh, great conversation. That was wonderful. And guys, if you have shorts, if you have films, if you have something you want to put out there and you're not... Uh, wanting to go or having any luck with uh, traditional distribution, which I know can be a royal pain in the ass, or if you have something you want to put out and just get some feedback on it. Um, submit to Cinematica. It's a really, really unique way of, of doing distribution, and I can tell I deal with distribution all the time. I don't know anything like this. This is actually a really cool way of doing it. Um, thank you again, uh, to Cinematica and to Dion and uh, to Dion Giuseppe and of course to my co-host Paul. Guys, mm-hmm. we will see you next week on Behind the Scenes. Good night. Thanks for checking out the show. Behind the Scenes can be heard live on the Voice America Variety Channel every Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific. Be sure to join Summer Helene for more Scoop next week.